Can you think back in a time in your life when you were facing an overwhelming challenge? It was right in front of you, and you had to confront it, but you were scared to death. Can you think of a time in your life, maybe you're in one of those situations right now where you're up against a challenge, it's staring you down, and you need to charge at it, but the reality is you're scared to death. What did you do? Did you retreat or did you advance? Well, today as we come to chapter 7 of the story, the children of Israel are faced with such an overwhelming challenge. It's now time for them. After 600 years of waiting, it is now time for them to enter into the land of Canaan and to take possession of it. 600 years earlier, God told an old man, Abraham, that he was going to build a nation through him and that one day he would give the land of Canaan to this great nation. Now, 600 years later, it's time. The children of Israel are on the east side of the Jordan. They're looking over on the west side and they are facing the giants because there's a problem with taking the land. There are already people who possess it. And the Bible says that there's lots of them, and they are a wicked people who wouldn't think twice to chop your head off if you try to take their property. In addition to that, the Bible tells us that this land of Canaan is filled with a preponderance of giants, really tall people. Now, we wanted to do a little modern-day reenactment of what this might have looked like for the children of Israel, if you will. We wanted to give you a, a reenactment of how intimidating it might have been. So David Robinson and I got together and we took a picture. In this picture, he is the Canaanite and I am the Israelite. Take a look at this. <laughs> Wouldn't you be scared to death if you had to face this guy? Well, as a small guy, my strategy would be to bite his ankle. <laughs> Forty years earlier, under the leadership of Moses, God sent 12 spies into the land from Kadesh Barnea to bring back a report. And they saw these people, these wicked, giant people, no connection with David Robinson. And they came back and said, no way. We can't do it. We do not have the courage to do it. Now under the leadership of young Joshua, 40 years later, they're now faced with the same challenge again. In just on the first four paragraphs of the opening of chapter 7 of the story, we see four occasions where God speaks into the life of Joshua and he says, be strong and courageous. Be strong and and courageous. You see, it was only Joshua and Caleb who were a part of that team of 12 40 years earlier who came back and gave the report that we can do it. Only two of the 12 said 40 years earlier, God's going to give us the land. Now, under Joshua's leadership, he needs to send some more spies to spy out the land and bring back a report. How many spies does he send in? Just two. I think that's pretty funny. Committees don't make courageous decisions. They make safe ones. 
It's time for a courageous decision. But the question is, how could they possibly be strong and courageous when they were looking at the people they had to face? All the odds were stacked against them. Well, in addition to God speaking and saying to Joshua and the children of Israel, be strong and courageous, he gives them three ingredients, three weapons, if you will, that will enable them to be successful in their conquest of the land. And I would encourage you to open up to chapter 7 of the story or Joshua chapter 1. And I'd also encourage you to take out a pen or a pencil and write down these three weapons of divine warfare. God tells Joshua on page 73 of the story, or Joshua 1.8, keep this book of the law always on your lips. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. The very first thing God says to the Israelites and to Joshua, if you want to be successful in your conquest of the land of Canaan, you need to be people of the word. Now you may recall if you read the story or chapter 7 this week, that the only time that the Israelites were unsuccessful in their conquering of the various cities was in the second conquest when they came up against a city called Ai, just simply spelled Ai. Ai. And they were unsuccessful, the story tells us on page 77, because an individual named Achan violated the clear instruction of God's word and kept some of the property or the spoil from their previous conquest of the people of Jericho. It failed. You might also have noticed that when Joshua dealt with the sin of Achan, God tells the children of Israel under the leadership of Joshua, now I want you to go back into Ai because now I will give it to you. And they were successful in the second attempt at conquering Ai. Now listen to this. After they were successful in conquering the city of Ai, Joshua calls all the people of Israel around him and he reads to them the word or the law. On page 78 of the story, or Joshua 8:34, this is how it reads. Afterward, Joshua reads all the words of the law, the blessings and the cursings, just as it is written in the book of the law. There was not a word of all that Moses had commanded that Joshua did not read to the whole assembly of Israel, including the women and the children and the foreigners who lived in the land among them. To avoid another Achan situation, it was important for Joshua to be a man of the word. But Joshua understood in order for them to avoid another Achan situation, not only did he need to be a man of the word, but all of Israel needed to be people of the word. And so he sat them down and he read the word of God to them before they did anything else, every single word of it. They read it. They were encouraged to meditate on it day and night, and they were challenged to do everything that it said for them to do. This would be the first secret of their success. The second weapon of divine warfare to guarantee success for the Israelites against this giant challenge of conquering Canaan was that they needed to be people of prayer. God said to Joshua 
you can be strong and courageous because the Lord your God will be going with you wherever you go. However, before you go, you need to talk with me to make sure that I'm in on it. If I'm in on it, I will go before you and you will be successful. Because there's no way that they were going to be successful against the giants without without God going before them. Any more than, say, Baylor, where my two kids go, are going to ever be successful against UT. It's just never going to happen without divine intervention. (laughs) And as a minister, I am praying toward that end. Dear God, again, the only time that the Israelites were unsuccessful in their conquest of the land was when Achan disobeyed the word when he secretively took some of the spoil from the Jericho people. It says to us in the story on page 77, or Joshua 7:12, that because of that act, God did not go with them when they attacked Ai for the first time, and as a result, they lost. In order to be successful, they needed to constantly seek out God, to talk with him, to listen to him, to see if he was in on it. If he was in, charge if he wasn't in it stay put it's a beautiful story of the conquest of jericho the first conquest where god says i want you to put the ark of the covenant out in the front which symbolized the presence of god and let the soldiers follow the ark of the covenant and basically this is a beautiful picture that says if you're going to be successful god needs to go before you and if he's before you you can be strong and courageous The third weapon of divine warfare is this. The people needed to identify themselves with God. God invited them to mark themselves, to identify themselves unashamedly with God. As you read through chapter 7 of the story of the book of Joshua, before the people engaged in battle, that is, after they crossed over the Jordan River, they were in the city of Gilgal, God instructed all the males to be circumcised. Circumcision outwardly identified that you belong to God. And this is something that the law instructed all along, that when a baby was eight years old, the boy would be circumcised. But because the children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness, they didn't do this. So before they began their conquest, all the males, young and old, were circumcised. Now, when I read that this week in my journal, I simply wrote, ouchie mama. (laughs) I don't know what you wrote, but I wrote ouchie mama. We're told in the story on page 75, or Joshua 5, 8, that for a few painful days, the only able-bodied people in the camp were the females. But this was important. As they took off into battle, all the men were marked that they belonged to God. Like a bird carries a little bracelet around their ankle, or a deer carries a little band in their ear, or a cattle carries the branding of the owner. So the followers of Yahweh of the Old Testament were branded that they unashamedly belonged to God. That was important. Now with those three things in place, 
the battle begins. And today, if you received your program, we gave you an additional map because we have a desire for you to learn the chronology of the Bible as well as the places or the geography of the Bible. And what we want you to do uh, today is to add this to your story. And what we want you to do is to draw a picture of Joshua, maybe a J and a little triangle, and put a head on him and draw a circle around him representing the children of Israel and have them on the um, east side of the Jordan River, that little river between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea, and start them somewhere right on the east side from Jericho and have them cross over the Jordan and land right before the city of Jericho. It tells us in the story, another story of the miraculous power of God, that God dams up the Jordan River 16 miles upstream and enables the Israelites to cross. And it tells us in the story that the very first city that they overtake, and it's a beautiful story of God's power, had nothing to do with the Israelites that they conquered Jericho. Page 75 and 76 of the story, or Joshua 5 and 6. Then the second city, second attempt, they conquer Ai. Page 77 to 78 of the story, or Joshua chapter 8. Then as the story unfolds, it says that they move to the south or a southern campaign and they overtake five cities or five kings that came up against the Israelites. And even with five of them joined together, the Israelites with these three divine weapons of warfare in place are successful. Then it says they move to the north to the northern campaign and they come up against an alliance of 14 plus kings and nations and peoples and they are successful in taking them out as well with these three weapons in place. It says to us on page 81 of the story, or Joshua eleven twenty three, so Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses, and he gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. Then the land had rest from war. I want you to take your map out again, and I want you to draw a circle around the area that they conquered. And we're going to show you this on, a, on, the, on the screen behind me. And I want you to take a circle and carefully draw the land or the area that Joshua, under his leadership, conquered as the children of Israel finally, after 600 years, take possession of the land. And as you're doing that, I want to ask and attempt to answer a very important question. We need to be reminded, why is it in the upper story of God did God see fit to give the children of Israel this particular land? Why is he giving them land at all? And I'd like to suggest two answers that come off the pages of the story, and I think it might be really helpful for you, because as you read chapter 7, there's a brutal battle that's going on, and I'm sure that that battle really bugs a number of you in terms of what the Israelites are doing in removing these people from their property. The very first reason that God is giving them this land, write this down, he's not giving it to Israel as much as he's taking it from the Amorites. The, the name Amorite is a general term of the population of people who resided in the area of Canaan. He's not giving it to the Israelites because they deserve it, but he is taking it from the Amorites for a very particular reason. Now, on page 69 of the story, or the previous chapter that we studied last week, or write this down, Deuteronomy chapter 9, 
verses 4 through 6, Moses is giving a speech to the Israelites, and he's instructing them about why God is giving them the land. Listen to this. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity that you're going, to, you're going in to take possession of their land, but on account of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God will drive them out before you to accomplish what he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Now, where is it that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob that he was going to take out the Amorites? Well, write down Genesis chapter 15 and verse 16. Early on in God's relationship with Abraham, where God says that he's going to make his offspring into a great nation, and one day he's going to give them the land of Canaan, he says to him, I'm not going to give it to you in your lifetime, Abraham, but eventually I'm going to give it to your descendants at just the right time. Listen to Genesis 15, 16. This is what God said to Abraham 600 years earlier. He says, in the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning Canaan, for the sins of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Amorites were sinful people just like us, but they let their sin nature go full speed ahead. They acted on their sin nature, not just in the leadership, but the entire community. And God looked ahead, and he said, it's only going to get worse. He says, and when their wickedness reaches its full measure, I will be totally just in stepping in and removing them. I will be totally just in doing that. I want you to think of times in even our lifetime where we have seen leaders go completely dark. Like Adolf Hitler. In my estimation, a detestable thing he did to the Jewish people. And what we now call the Holocaust. Men, women, and children. I call that wicked. And I believe it was totally just, just my opinion, I believe it was totally just to take him out. What happens when wickedness goes beyond the leaders and is embraced by all the people of the community? Wickedness deep within the DNA of the entire community. Unashamed wickedness. What kind of wickedness were they engaged in? Here's a couple of scriptures you might want to write down. Deuteronomy 12, 31 and chapter 20, verse 18 says that in their worshiping of their gods, their false gods, they did detestable things that God Hates. What kind of detestable things? I found at least two. The first one is in Exodus chapter 34, verses 15 and 16. It says that when they engaged uh, in their worship of the gods, they also engaged in the name of their religion in widespread prostitution. But worse than that, you tell me if you do not think this is alternate. Deuteronomy chapter 12 and verse 31 says that they burned their children. They burned their children. 
and offered them as sacrifices to these gods. I can't imagine. That's wickedness in its full measure. And in my estimation, God doesn't need my approval. God is completely just in removing them from the land. Their wickedness has reached its full measure, and he teamed it up with the possession of the land of the children of Israel. He wanted to remind the Israelites that he's not giving them the land because of their righteousness or integrity. We've read the story for crying out loud. He's giving it to them because the wickedness of the Amorites has reached its full measure, and it's now time for new people to possess the land. But that's not the only reason. This is the one I really want you to pay attention to. The second reason he is giving them the land in his upper story is that he wants to establish his name in Canaan so that all the people can come to know the one true God. This is really important. At just the right time, God is giving this now big and great nation as he promised a land to establish their identity, but more importantly, to establish God's name among them. Why? So that the other surrounding nations will look at the success of this nation, the nation of Israel, and how God has involved himself with them, and that they will get to know this one true God through the Israelites' relationship with God and understand that God loves them as well. And he's the one true God that doesn't just want a relationship with Israel, but he wants a relationship with them, and they can see him through the lives of the Israelites in Canaan in their relationship with God. Not just the Israelites, but all people. I counted 19 times, primarily in the book of Deuteronomy, where God explicitly states that this is his mission. God wants to establish or make his name known in Canaan. Now the question is, what does this true and ancient story have to do with our modern day lives? What is the application of chapter 7 to us? And here's at least one. I believe that God wants to make his name known in San Antonio. Do you? I believe that God wants to make his name known in San Antonio. And he wants, listen to this, he wants to use and do this through his relationship with us, his church, so that through our lives, others might see God, the one true God. So he is inviting us, like he did Joshua and the Israelites, he's inviting us to be strong and courageous as individuals and as a church as we face this giant vision. Now, as many of you know, and if you're new, you need to hear, it has been the desire of Oak Hills Church for a long time to make Christ known in every neighborhood, every apartment complex, every apartment complex, and every school in San Antonio. God placed it on the heart of a minister that, the, the minister that preceded Max Licato 20 years before, a guy named Charles Prince in 1975. God laid this passion on his heart that through the people of Oak Hills, we would make God known. And then under the leadership of Max Licato and the elders, they began to pray that God would see this congregation, in concert with others, reach 10% of the city. And some of you have been here for that journey as we have been praying that God would give us the city. And then through God's appointment, he invited me to join Max and Charles and to join you to begin talking about God-inspired strategies of how we can unleash what's in this room into the city 
of San Antonio so that his name is known on every corner and in every crevice of this city and the surrounding communities. And I don't know about you, but that is an awesome vision. It is a gigantic and overwhelming vision. And listen to this. We believe, just like with Israel, that you are our best strategy. To take the wonderful things that happen in this room, on the Crown Ridge campus and in the South Room, to take the wonderful things that right now are happening on our Journey Fellowship campus on the Northeast side, to take the wonderful things that are happening on our Fiesta Fellowship campus right now on the West side, a group of people who come together and unashamedly worship God to take that love of God that is expressed on the weekend, on Sunday, and turn it loose the other six days for us to love every neighbor in San Antonio as ourselves. To take a risk to walk across the room, to take a risk to walk across the street, to take a risk to walk across the hall and engage and in love others right where they're at. To live distinctively different lifestyles, to handle the giants of illness and financial crisis differently because of our relationship with God to have a different outlook on sexual purity, to have different priorities that puts people over the pursuit of things, to live a life of responsibility to our neighbor versus always protecting our individual rights. And if we are going to dare to do this, we need to be strong and courageous. Just like with Joshua in the Israelites in Canaan, so with Christ followers in San Antonio. But if we're going to be successful at this conquest, we need to take up three divine weapons of warfare, just like they did. Number one, we need to be people of the word. Just like with Israel, so with us. Before we take off into battle, before we take off into the city, we must, we must be people of the word. And that's why that in my first year here with you, Instead of us immediately talking about detailed strategies on how we're going to unleash the love of Oak Hills into the community, some of you are already doing that, but before we start doing that, we need to make sure every person of the Oak Hills families captures the Word of God, the story of God, and that's why we're going through the story. First, first things first, we must first understand the heart and the story of God. It's not just a nice program but it is absolutely essential to our success. That's why each week I ask you, if you brought your story or Bible, hold them up. I'm going to ask you right now. If you brought your story or Bible, hold them up all over the place. I'm not doing this just because it's a fun exercise. It's exercising, putting your hands over your head, getting the blood to flow. I'm doing it because in embracing the story, diving into the Word of God is absolutely essential. Is absolutely essential. It's not going to work if, if, if Randy Frazee is a... a a, a man of the word. It's not going to work if just Max Licato is a man of the word. In order for us to be successful in our individual and corporate mission to make Christ known in San Antonio, all the people of Oak Hills must be people of the word. Now, you may recall that when Joshua brought all the Israelites around for the reading of every word of the law, you may recall who was present. It wasn't just the men, it wasn't just the women but it was also the children. There's not a better time to start 
becoming people of the word than when you're just a kid. And that's why it was non-negotiable for us to put a copy of the story in the hands of every single kid at Oak Hills because we believe that they need to be people of the word. We believe they are part of carrying the torch of Jesus Christ. And while we have wonderful student and children's ministries here uh, at Oak Hills, we believe the best equippers of our kids is their parents. And that's why we unashamedly challenge the parents, sit down each week and read the chapter of the story with your children. This fall, we are launching the story to the family of Oak Hills. But next fall, after we have captured the heart of God's word, we will launch our story into the city of San Antonio and beyond. That's what we're going to do if God goes before us. Not only do we need to be people of the word, but we need to be people who pray. We need to be in an ongoing conversation with God to make sure he's in on it before we go. And I can brag about this congregation because this value was here before I came. Oak Hills Church is a praying church, and it's going to stay a praying church. One of the things that greatly inspired me as I was considering a move from Chicago to San Antonio was a decision that the elders made not to build the new worship center here at the Crown Ridge campus. I was inspired by that. You might find that to be kind of interesting because it would be a lot more fun speaking in a really, really big room. I came from a church that had 7,200 seats. That seems odd that I would come to a church with 1,800 seats. But I was inspired by the decision of the elders. Why? Because we engaged in a campaign to raise money to build a new worship center, and we came $5 million short. You may not know this, but most churches I know know would apply conventional wisdom and say, we're going to move forward anyhow, and the new growth we will experience will overcome the financial debt. But they sought God's face and said, no, we're not going to do that. We're We're not going to build at this time. And ladies and gentlemen, that is a courageous decision. Instead, they went back to the congregation and asked you if you would consider giving one of the years of your three-year pledge, and listen to this, today, because they sought God's face, this congregation is completely out of debt. Do you understand that? But listen to this, who would have ever thought then what we know now about the financial crisis of our nation? Instead of us being scared as a church on how we're going to pay off the debt, we are poised to help everybody who is hurting. Did the elders know this when they made the decision? No, sirree, Bob. I don't think they did. If they did, that's kind of scary. (laughs) But what they did was they sought out God's face, and they listened to him, and they trusted him, And as a result, we are poised as a congregation for something we didn't see coming, but God saw coming all along. Aren't you excited about being a part of a church like this? For crying out loud, I'm getting excited. I'm going to need a hanky here pretty soon. Now as a congregation and the elders, we are praying about where God wants us to go next. We know that this room is filled and God's not done with us. So we're praying, if not a new sanctuary, where do you want our next site to be, Lord? Where do you want it to be? And so next week when you come here, you're going to fill out a survey, and we're going to put out a number of different places we think God might want us to go next, and we're going to listen to that survey, and we're going to pray. 
we're going to invite you to pray. And wherever God tells us to go, we're going to? But if God says not to go, I ain't going. (laughs) This is a solid principle to govern your lives by. But in order for it to work in a church and for your individual lives, you have to be a praying person. The final weapon of divine warfare to guarantee our success in the conquest is that we need to be people who identify ourselves with God. In the Old Testament, the men were circumcised. This was an outward outward declaration that they were unashamedly connected to the name, the name of God. For the church in the New Testament, that's called baptism. When a person is baptized, they are publicly declaring that they unashamedly belong to God. This is a big deal to God in his word, and therefore it's a big deal to us here at Oak Hills. Twice a year, we take the journey, we take the trek to the Guadalupe River where hundreds of people are baptized, and we're going to continue to do that. But at the beginning of next year, we're going to construct an outdoor baptistry in our open amphitheater with a vision that every single week and our prayer is every single day people will be declaring their allegiance to the God of San Antonio who wants to make his name known. (laughs) Jacuzzi for Jesus. (laughs) Call it whatever you want. Last night we had a bunch of uh, some people that were baptized last night on the spot And we took them up to our baptistry, which is usually warmed, but it was freezing cold. And I think that only declares further their commitment to Christ. This outdoor baptistry will most of the time be warm. But if not, who cares? If you're going to be a part of all of this, you need to identify yourselves unashamedly to the name, the name of God. God called the Israelites to be strong and courageous, to establish his name in Canaan. God is calling us today to be strong and courageous so we can establish his name in San Antonio. In order to be successful, we need to be people of the word. We need to be people of prayer. We need to be people who unashamedly identify ourselves with the name, the name of God. And I think, folks, if we are obedient to put those three things in place, God will go before us. And we can actually do this. I want to show you a picture of what that looks like. Look at this. <laughs> I'm taking him down. But you need to see the second picture. Here it is. <laughs> David Robinson, 7-1. I'm 5-9. Okay, 5-8. <laughs> but that chair was God's presence. It's his boost. We can't do it without him. At the end of Joshua's life, at the end of Joshua's life, he stood before the children of Israel and he said, today you must choose the gods you will serve. But as for me and my house, are you saying that for yourself? Today you must choose who, which God you will serve. But as for me and my house, If that, in fact, is the case, then as the walls of Jericho could not prevail against the Israelites, so the gates of hell will not prevail against the church. Let the battle begin, and all the church said.